This is episode 29 of the Vinyl Detroit Podcast. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the Vinyl Detroit Podcast. This episode is a very special one to me because the musicians that I spoke to, I've frankly been fans of their music since high school. It all started when I purchased their 7-inch, My Forgotten Favorite, which came out on Slumberland in 1991, and that band's Velocity Girl. I reached out to the band as I saw there was a flurry of activity recently with some new releases, some shows, And I just felt like there was a lot to talk about. So I was able to speak to Sarah, Kelly, and Brian for this episode, who were just fantastic. They were just the best guests. So rather than listen to me babble on about Velocity Girl, let's go ahead and get into my discussion with Sarah, Kelly, and Brian of Velocity Girl.
All right. Well, thank you for joining me on this episode of the Vinyl Detroit Podcast. I am super, super excited uh, for today's guests. I've got three of the five members of Velocity Girl joining me today. I've got Sarah, Brian, and Kelly. Hey, guys. Hi. Hi. How you doing? Thanks for having us. I'm so happy to have you. I was I was so excited when I when I heard. I've been corresponding with uh, with Jim, who's not here today, but uh, when when he said yes, you guys wanted to do it and everything. I I can't tell you how excited I was, and as I was sharing with uh, Shannon earlier, I'm or Sarah. I'm sorry. It's Sarah. Uh, yeah. I know. I was looking at your it name happens wrong all the time. Oh, I know better. But I just I I I, I don't um, be offended at when I correct it really quickly. It just, that's the better, easier way to do it. Sorry. No, I've, I've known, I've known your name forever. I just, you know, I looked and I'm, I'm tad nervous. I'm not going to lie, everybody listening and, and, and you guys here. So, um, you know, I've been, I've been a huge fan since like I was sharing with Sarah since I was like 17, you know, back in high school. So this means a lot to me and um, I'm really happy to have you guys. Thank you. Cool. Yeah. Thanks so, for having us. Yeah. Oh, it's great. So you guys have been super, uh, well, not super, but you've been pretty active lately. And and like I was telling Sarah again before we talked, uh, once I saw you guys were were doing a quote unquote reunion, quote unquote, kind of digging through the tapes, uh, I got super excited, and that's why I reached out. Um, most, I would say, most of the people that listen to my podcast, and frankly, it's it's all over the world at this point. Um, not too big in in the continent of Africa, but other than that, I'm I'm doing pretty well. I think most of the people who uh, listen to this know who you guys are. So, you know, some of the some of the acts that I've spoken to, maybe not the case, but I just I felt that it would still be important, though, to, to kind of put some context to our conversation about just kind of how you guys got started. Um, you know, I know a lot. I know most of you guys were in other acts prior. So I guess my first question is really, how did all this get started? And and why did you guys all come together? Like, how did how did this group of five come and, and really start making music? Kelly, I think you'd be a good raconteur. Yeah, well, I think you were in the first iteration of the band. Yeah. So the the genesis of the band was initially it was just a group of friends. I think we were all interested in music. Um, most of us were at the University of Maryland. So in the first iterations before it became Velocity Girl, it was just the same people who hung out and we would hang out at the same house. Um, and in that we formed uh, an initial band that was called the Gutter Democrats, which came out of a uh, comic book, the, mm. that name. Uh, and there was came out of a diff- what book? I want yeah, to hear but- this. <laughs> yeah. Archie and I were two of the members of that sort of operation. And there were some people who came and went. Um, And we've said this several times. It really was like all of the punk rock and indie rock origin stories you ever hear. It's like, we didn't know how to play, but somebody had a cheap guitar and we took the, you know, a bass drum and turned it over and somebody would wail on that. And somebody had a bass guitar and we would, you know, try and approximate some of the music we were listening to and interested in. And this would have been, you know, the late eighties. So there was a lot of, uh, you know, noise rock and, you know, creation records, uh, Sonic youth, all of that kind of stuff was in, in the stew. And we would take our minimal or nascent skills or complete absence of skills and make noise like all good, bands do when they start uh it had nothing to do with um 
any aspiration or anything. It's just like, we love music and we wanted to make music ourselves. Uh, so we go through some variations of this. And then there was a core group of us. Brian was part of this in another band called, uh, at the time, Big Jesus Trash Can, mm -hmm. who became Whirl. Um, there was Goddard Democrats, who became Velocity Girl. There was Black Tambourine. Um, and Powder Burns, which was myself and Mike, who now runs Slumberland Records. Mm -hmm. And we all started putting out our own singles. Uh, so we were, you know, owner-operated uh, record label. As things started to get more serious, there was some some movement. So in the initial phase of moving from Goddard Democrats to Velocity Girl, we lost some people. Uh we started to settle on a lineup that was Archie, myself, uh, this guy Bernie, and Bridget Cross, who's uh, went on to be, uh, join Unrest and Air Miami. Mm -hmm. um, we did we did a single, and then Bridget decided she wanted to leave. Um, and uh, at at some point in this, Archie told the the because he was directly involved in this, Jim sought him out i think at the record co-op at maryland and said hey your guys band is pretty cool and he was interested in playing drums although he's primarily and still is primarily a guitar player hmm. uh but he, he just had this idea that i'd love to play drums for you guys and sort of insinuated himself into this and i think the first practice he showed up it, it just kind of felt natural and right we're like this is pretty good bridget was still in the band at that point we did the single um and we said, this is pretty good. And then Bridget left. And then I can't remember the order it, it happened. At some point, I think World was winding down. And uh, Brian, you know, we were like, we've got space in the band. Do you want, you, do you want to do this? I can't remember how the invite happened. Because uh, I think you came over first, didn't you, Brian? No, Sarah was actually in the band first. Oh, oh that's yeah. right. So I'm a terrible narrator of this. But so when Bridget <laughs> left, Jim knew Sarah and said, you know, why don't you come check this out? And um, it was interesting because, you know, Sarah is a studied person in music and was obviously operating at a level well above where we were at. Uh, but that that felt good. And, you know, we we started like that. And then then after that, Brian moved over and then all of a sudden it was the band. Um, and I, I, you know, I think... I know for myself, you know, I have a deep passion for music and the idea of being in a band was it was one of the most important things in the world. But there was actually no idea of, you know, this is going to be a profession or this is going to be what I'm going to do for the next six years or whatever it is. Uh, it just kind of happened. Each step was like, oh, well, I guess we'll put out another single. OK, we'll put out an EP. Oh, we've signed a record contract with Sub Pop. And then. <laughs> You know, now we're touring all the time. I guess I better quit my job and, you know, do this instead. Um, you know, and that's the sort of nonlinear, incorrect way of how things ended up the way they are. I, I didn't know a lot of that. So I knew that that scene was that that D.C., Maryland. I mean, it seemed like there was a lot of overlap. And I mean, you mentioned you mentioned a lot of different people, a lot of different names and. Um, it, it, what a what a fertile time. I mean, did you guys feel like it was like that at that time? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the shows were 
a plenty, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, every weekend there are shows with great bands and a good, a very wide variety of sounds, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. I, I think over time, the more you do it, the more you find like-minded people, you start doing shows, you know, back in the day, the, I think the big club here, that the most people met at was DC space. And you know, it's still dearly missed. Yeah. Uh, so, and they had all kinds of music, but you would find other bands like you, or like in our case, somebody's playing in one band and then they stop playing in that band. They join your band and you have that sort of cross pollination. You, you play more out, you get out more and then you become somebody hears about you or you become friends like we did with tsunami. Mm-hmm. Um, and they say, we're going on this short tour. We're going to go to West Virginia and Pittsburgh and do this. Will you come with us? And yeah, we'll, we'll do that. Uh, and then, you know, you, you pay your dues like anyone. You play shows in front of 15 people in a venue, uh, you know, in the middle of West Virginia, like in Morgantown. And people may or may not like what you're doing. And you sleep on people's floors. And they're in bands. So you start to talk to them. And they say, you know, we're friends with these guys from, you know, from uh, Memphis. You should check them out. Or, you know, everybody sort of like Super Chunk was a band that was the nexus for a lot of people we knew. Um, and it's like, OK, well, they're coming through. Maybe you get a show with them and then they'll introduce you to the next thing or the the idea of, you know, expanding your world. So the more you share information like that in the pre-internet age. Uh, was how sort of each thing would evolve. So you just met more and more people, and all of a sudden, you know, bands from Memphis and New Jersey and New York, and you know, maybe out in Pittsburgh or down in Richmond. Uh, you get to know more of the bands in your area. You start playing with them more. I mean, it's just a natural progression. I think every, you know, people make a lot of of scenes like Seattle or Athens or anything that sort of blew up, you know, with a big, big band at its core. Uh, But every, I think every city or, you know, any sort of musical thing that gains any traction has that kind of thing. There's, there's a core and more bands get to know each other. And then if one of them breaks out, then all of a sudden you have a scene. Um, Sometimes even if bands don't break out, you have a scene, you go to a place because that's where, people are in bands. Yeah, I want to I want to ask you about that later. So I'm I'm going to I'm going to save a little bit of that because I want to talk about, you know, at some point the sub pop uh signing, I guess. Uh I want to get I want to kind of hear from you guys a little bit about that because that that to me was um was kind of like what's the word? Uh it really I think justified at the time the music that I liked because I mean there was not there was no independent bigger than sub pop at the time mm-hmm. uh, which you know again I want to I want to save that but but that that to me was a really interesting moment and I'm, I'm so excited that's like one of my one of my key questions I want to ask you guys um, the smartest decision we ever made was yeah. or was not it was oh yeah was. yeah I'm sure yeah. I cannot wait to ask you that I think we're yeah we got a couple more to go still but I do want to hear about that because that <clears throat> I, I've got a couple of those laying around here actually as I sit here because um that that was uh, anyway I'm getting ahead of myself let's set the stage I'm sorry I'm I'm rambling <laughs> but not no, really that, <laughs> no that was great Kelly though that that was a really good really good kind of basis for for kind of understanding the band and and kind of understanding those early days. 
um, kind of sticking with those early days. And I've got, you know, those of you who are listening to this, you, you can't see it. But, you know, this single, um, I'm sure you're familiar with this. Um, I'm holding up the My Forgotten Favorite 7-inch. And, you know, to me, it, I listened to it again tonight. And it's just, it, it, ha it still means so much to me. And um, I don't know. When I interviewed Mike Shulman, and, and he, I think I asked him, you know, what 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 acts or what not acts, but what recordings kind of showcase Slumberland. He gave his couple, and I, this was one of the ones I picked because I just I felt like this really, really summed it up for me. Even though there's been so many more since then, I keep coming back to this. This this just means so much. But this is, I mean, it's a pretty gritty. It's a pretty gritty recording, particularly my forgotten favorite in a good way, of mm -hmm. course. And then, of course, you know, Sarah, with your voice, I mean, there's just there's this beauty. There's this, as as Kelly said, this kind of classical. It sounds like a, cl a classically trained or, or a knowledgeable, um, you know, vocalist, uh, just kind of lurking just below the surface of all this noise. And and I always loved that. That was really beautiful. I'd like to understand maybe during that time when the band was really active and, and, and recording singles, there's quite a few of those and recording albums. What was that songwriting process like? And, and kind of how did you guys kind of approach or balance the the noisy guitars, the dual fenders with Sarah's voice? Because I, I think I think that's to me, that's the formula. I guess. How did you guys approach that that process? In hindsight, I, I always say if you, know, you, you you whittle it down to two words, it would be noise and melody. Mm -hmm. I think maybe one of these guys is it would be better at um, answering that question as far as the genesis of the sound and I guess the kind of stuff that was inspiring you. Brian. Yeah, I, I think, uh, um, I mean, we were all big fans uh, um, of a lot of those local bands that we talked to, we were playing with, but um, uh, especially uh, we were listening to a lot of stuff from England. So um, all, it was very Anglophilic um, in our early uh, influences, uh, you know, Shoegaze and Creation Records, Sarah Records, um, all those guys. And um like at least when I sort of when I joined the band, they had already had like a a series of songs they were playing, and they just kind of wanted to um, add another guitar layer to it to to kind of thicken up that sound. I think um, uh, to also make it more full and uh, you know a little bit noisier, a little bit um, more layered. Um, and I think initially, also a lot of those early shoegaze bands, especially, were influ We were influenced by them in wanting to have sort of a blend of that melody in the noise. And so, you know, that, that sort of was like the, you know, bit of the idea there just to sort of blend that melody, carrying it through and have it kind of wash in with the guitars and, um, and, and sort of sound full and rich. And, you know, I, I think we didn't necessarily hit that mark <laughs> um, perfectly, but I mean, I think that's the way a lot of bands, uh, kind of find themselves is they they strive for something and then sort of miss the mark, but then hit something else instead, and and it it seemed to to work out for us. It seems to stick. Yeah, you know, I I I was doing a little bit of research, and and like I was telling you know Sarah earlier, I I tried not to on this one. I wanted to just kind of have it be more organic, and I some of the research I did see, I kept seeing shoegaze, and it's funny because, like, I I just and I I see it now that you explain it that way. But like I never really saw it that way. I saw it as as just 
I don't know. Shoegaze has this like wash to it. And maybe it's Sarah's vocals, I think, that maybe ground it. Um, but to me, it just it had a different feel. I mean, I can I can see the influences. I can see the the creations of the world and you know some of the more noisy Sarah stuff. I, I could see that, too. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that was all the things that I was into. So it was probably that the reason I probably was attracted to your, your music first was I probably saw that as that natural evolution. And, and frankly, at the time you guys know, I mean, that was being done overseas. It wasn't, it wasn't really being done here in the States that much. Not, not like that at least. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I know, you know, the shoegaze thing gets brought up frequently and certainly it seems more now than I think when we were active. Uh, and I, it is definitely part of our sound bands like my bloody Valentine and slow dive and, uh, lush were, you know, tremendously important and to us and things that we were listening to. Um, and I, I think it's, it's important to point out like Archie and I did an interview with somebody recently and it was interesting how different we thought, like we thought differently about what was the most influential <laughs> stuff. Uh, because I, when I think of all the members of the band, the, some of the things that's in the background that's that's coming through us, or you know, that in, informed us, there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, like the replacements or the wedding present or Blondie or the Beach Boys or the Beatles, and you know, standard rock and pop acts I, I think a lot of our the, the format of our songs quite often falls into that although we did plenty of you know certainly on copacetic there's big spacey noise jams worth of stuff that very one yeah um, and that might be worth talking about because i think the cat is out of the bag about what we've done with that yeah we're going to talk about that yeah. later on <laughs> so i think you know, a lot of our songs have, uh, you know, standard, you know, rock and pop structures with, you know, gobs of noise. And uh, and then, of course, you know, Sarah's vocal being an underpinning around what's going on. Um, so we have elements of what you would think of shoegaze, but I would never have thought of us as a straight shoegaze band, even though we ended up on a shoegaze compilation uh, that whoever put that one out a few years ago so uh, we definitely have elements and people now seem to to say we were part of that move you know the american version of that movement mm -hmm. um but for me personally i thought we had that plus some other thing going on and i would see you know say the replacements being equally as important to what we're doing as my bloody valentine mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i could i could see the lineage from the replacements that one i that i can see pretty clearly um, but you're right. I mean, on the My Bloody Valentine, and I was listening to those at at the time as well. But I I never connected you guys to that at the time, which is which is really interesting. Now that you know, we kind of fast forward. I don't even know thirty some years that 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 comparison's being made, and, it, and it's it's accurate in some degree. I just I guess I didn't see it myself at the time, but I, well, I guess I do to some degree now. Archie pointed this out before, and I think this is true. Like the New Zealand bands, the Flying Nun bands were hugely important you know the verlaines the clean yep. the chills the bats all of those were definitely percolating in the background when when we were active oh i could see i that. have to say i, I yeah. didn't know uh, a lot about any of those bands so it was an education a wonderful education <laughs> 
um because it's great music but i kind of came um for better or worse the music i was listening to in high school and college was kind of i don't know funkarockasaurus <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going Debbie Gibson, but that that's good. like the Red Hot Chili Pepper. I, I had I had like a good beginning, and then I went with this weird way. Red Hot Chili Peppers and um, Fishbone—they're great. Uh, you know, like Living Color. I would that was I, I was I think, but when when I joined the band, that's <laughs> that's what I was into at the time. So um, Fishbone are one of the greatest bands. Fishbone is amazing. Yeah, yeah. They just they uh, so I, I had quite I was learning um about all these amazing bands and um you had mentioned like I my my kind of um uh elite training and the truth is I I you know I didn't know anything about recording and um I was pretty pretty anxious <laughs> and I don't you know the the fact that uh, the vocals are pretty washed out at the beginning there, I think, is a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about that too, Sarah, because the that remix of my forgotten favorite is a different story. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I was yeah. shocked. So I mean, in a good way, but I want to talk about that because um, it, it. I mean, I was. Well, I got a question on that later, so I guess we'll ask. I'm sorry for interrupting. That's okay. Was I done? I will say though, I came, I came in at it in high school. I was into, um, through the side door, you know, I was also, I was into all the requisite DC punk bands, but I really loved, uh, trouble funk and, um, EU and the names of the other bands are, um, I'm blanking on, but go, go music. Hmm. was really that was kind of my jam for a while hmm. so i've just redeemed myself <laughs> your indie cred is back yeah they dropped the bomb on the northwest crew <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, so that was that was a great kind of primer i guess for the the, the early years and then kind of kind of how how that sound started to to morph uh we're going to go ahead and give a a listen to um, the first track from Simpatico, uh, which is called "Sorry Again." Any 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 fond memories of of this recording? Anything that you you could share with the listeners here about that? This is an important lesson for anybody in a band. Is sometimes when you think an idea is stupid, it will end up being great. So you should be very humble and pay attention. Because I remember when I think it was Jim. I think it was this is a Jim originated song. Um, he had the idea that we would get go around and do the woohoos, and I I just thought that was I said that's <laughs> dumb, but okay, okay we'll do the woohoos, and now it is absolutely one of my favorite parts of the song, and I'm probably one of the most enthusiastic woohooers out there. <laughs> I'd say yeah, that's just that's Jim at his best. You know, he's got a a pretty strong pop sensibility, and. Um, yeah, when he writes, when he when he's the one who's originating a song, um, yeah, they're they're yeah. really strong pop songs. Yeah, yeah we, that that was well, quickly that um, 
that that album was sort of like a bit of a transition from from us sort of all piecing together so i mean it didn't completely change but uh like with copacetic and previous and songs earlier than that it was really just somebody would kind of come in with a riff and then everybody would play it over and over again and then somebody would come up with a second part but with simpatico it started becoming a little bit more like jim would come in with some more complete work maybe not the full song but you know more parts kind of more constructed so um the songwriting of like individuals was coming into play more i think with simpatico um mostly from jim and archie but um uh you know we and then you know i think i would contribute like like a, a little bit of a song or something here or there um uh, to initiate something and then we'd kind of just you know play it until we had something new but yeah it was it was definitely a um it was a surprise for me when I first heard it. Uh, be, I mean, it, it just, I, I was used to listening to Copacetic and, and I have some of the singles and, and all of a sudden it, it started to, to have a, a little bit more of a, a production uh, going on. And I guess and you guys said it best. I mean, there was more of a pop element uh, with the woohoos and all that. And I was very surprised because I was just so used to the, the, just the kind of the straight in your noise face with, with Sarah's vocal and, and then all of a sudden we were starting to get something a little bit different. And, and I think that carried on, you know, to, to the, the final album as well. So let's go ahead and give Sorry again a listen. And this is from the album Sympatico by Velocity Girl. I'm all alone on the porch I need you to get off too 
Okay, that, so that was Sorry Again, the first track off of Simpatico uh, by Velocity Girl. Love that song. Love the woohoos. Uh, too bad Jim couldn't join us today, but I guess I didn't realize he was the originator of that. I love it. Um, I, I wanted to kind of, I guess, switch gears maybe a little bit, but I kind of alluded to it just now. Um, I've seen the the evolution, and I've, obviously you guys have lived it, so you know it better than I do. But, you know, the early recordings, very, very noisy, very guitar forward. Um, and then as as the al- as the singles were coming out and as the albums were coming out, it was becoming a different sound. And and I, I especially as we got towards the final album uh, that just had a, a to me, I guess, a, a very different sound. Um, I guess I wanted to ask kind of what was behind that evolution. And I, somebody mentioned that, that Jim was part of that. But maybe what 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 caused that that change was it the time i mean was it the early to mid 90s as 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 trends and as music was changing people growing up kind of what was behind that well some of it was i I think like almost any band you ever follow is you spend a little bit more time playing so you get a little bit better um i think you know the the move or the switch in sounds between copacetic and simpatico, I think to a lot of people is jarring. And I know a lot of people like one and don't like the other. And, you know, and they're almost in some cases, separate camps. Um, I know many of us were huge fans of, you know, the cornerstone eighties alternative bands, you know, the Smiths echo and the bunny men, the cure, um, and you know things of 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 that's you know those kind of bands i mean one of the things we did is like who produced those records who engineered those records can we find somebody uh to do that because that's what we're, we're into now obviously we you know we were not the smiths or the cure or echo and the bunny men um even though they were tremendously important to us we had our our thing going on but we wanted you know, somebody knew how to do that voodoo in the studio. So let's find who can do that voodoo. Voodoo, uh, and then you know, in the case of Simpatico, John Porter is a tremendously established producer. Uh, you know, he played in Roxy Music. You know, you look at the the album credits he he's got. So he's going to bring some of what he's got to what we've got going on. Um, and it was a, a you know, it was. For me personally, it was a tremendously difficult record to make because it was a difference between going in and saying, here's our songs, put them on tape to somebody going, maybe you should do it better. Try doing this different. No, do it again. Nope, that's not right. Do it again. Nope, do it again. That's what you want me to play it for you. Okay, then do it again. Do it again. Uh, So it was a a completely different process. Uh, But I think it was a good process. It was a learning process. I think all of us became better players and writers after doing it. Um, and even though the, you know, the sound moved pretty extreme, extremely from copacetic to that, uh, it was the direction we were heading, you know, maybe there, there might've been a middle step somewhere that we skipped, but that's, you know, that's where we wanted to end up. Uh-huh. I think we had, I mean, even before, you know, John Porter putting us through the paces, I think, you know, we'd been on like what one US tour, one full tour, two? Yeah, at least one at that that point, like, you know, yeah. Like, like, 
So you really get your your chops going <laughs> when you're playing live and you get inspired by other bands and um and so and I also think we were just growing growing as songwriters. So I think we had some you know everyone's parts even before we came in uh to John I think we're we're stronger and um then of course John um he was wonderful, but occasionally, I, I would say not even occasionally, once or twice, he was a little rough on us. Uh, but it was uh, it was a good thing. Well, you know what they say. I mean, for those for those of you that are that are parents and that, I mean, if you're if you're not if you're not rough on on people, sometimes you don't care, you know. Mm -hmm. Or was he just rough? Yeah, <laughs> he didn't care. No, no, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. he was, he was, he was wonderful yeah. to work with, and I mean, he just he he made us realize, I think, our limitations, and he recognized where he could push us, maybe past those a mm -hmm. little bit. Um, I, I mean that that record was was produced. I mean, Copacetic was recorded, but Simpatico was yeah. produced. I mean, he he everything from listening to the songs to saying like, all right we need to cut like an extra verse and chorus out of this one. Wow. Um, we need to, you know, put some other guitar parts. He played a lot of guitar on that mm -hmm. record, actually a lot of kind of the sort of sparkly fairy dust parts that are sort of like thrown in there. Um, he, he actually played that stuff. So, um, so every, yeah, everything from contributing parts to, uh, um, to, to really kind of slicing up the songs when, and then the engineer who worked with him was literally slicing the tape to like, to get Jim's like drum beats, like on time, <laughs> he would cut the tape yeah. and take, take out a little tiny little slice and glue it back together, tape it back together. And, um, uh, just to get Jim's like, you know, timing, right. Jim so. was talking about having such a hard time with that Bo Diddley beat on, um, Oh shoot. I forgot. Uh, there's only one thing left to say, but that's the uh, one thing no. left to say. I think it was was the one he had he had trouble with. That doesn't have Bo Diddley beat, but he oh yeah, he, it, he did have trouble on that one. I had yeah, <laughs> but he said he he couldn't actually really learn it until he heard it back, and then it was like oh, it just like couldn't it couldn't get into his mind, and then when he heard it and it's full spliced together, he's like aha. This I can do. Can you believe that's what we used to do? I mean, think about that. Like, every, and everybody did it. That's I why know. every two inch recording, you know, magnetic tape recorder you see has a, a uh, editing block on it mm -hmm. because they just expected you to be like, you've got to fix it. And here's the, are you running it at 15 or 30? This is the angle you slice it at. Oh my God. I mean, think about the skill involved in that. Mm -hmm. It's just amazing. I mean, jeez. Kids yeah. today, they don't understand. <laughs> you know, I feel old. <laughs> Kids with their computers. <laughs> uh, but, you know, back to your point, I, I don't know if it was, I think it was Brian who said it. I mean, Copacetic was recorded and Simpatico was, was produced. I mean, you hear these stories now of people that are recording, and, I mean, they can work on something for, like, a year. I mean, just endlessly tweaking and and. And you guys didn't have that that luxury. I mean, you had enough. You were on Sub Pop, so I mean, you had some some level of backing. But I mean, you had to get in and out of the studio. You weren't there to to compose and to. Simpatico was was it three weeks? Yeah, or yeah, I want to say I want to say because it was close to Christmas, so I want to say it was like 
two weeks and like 10 days or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Which is insane to think about. I know. <laughs> Different era again, and Kelly. That's, I mean, that's recording and mixing. Yeah. <laughs> Was it. Wow. And walking out with a master tape. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's cool. But I wanted to talk about the, the, um, the sub pop era because, you know, I, I know that... Um, I mean, you guys, you guys were, were playing music at that level at that time. So you knew the importance of the label. You knew what they were doing, uh, how influential it was during those years. Um, I mean, I don't know. When, when I saw you guys had, had signed with them, I don't remember how I came about it, but I was just like, you know, again, I was like that, that really validated the music that I liked. Like, wow, they're on, they're on with like Nirvana and I mean, Soundgarden. I just, I, I couldn't wrap my head around it. One of you guys, or maybe two, I think maybe it was Sarah and somebody else mentioned earlier that it was one of the best decisions you ever made. So if, if we could maybe just talk, I'd like to talk through that, that sub pop um, courting process and, and what it was like being on that label at that time. There was no, there was no bigger independent at that time. Well, I think there's mm-hmm. two important things to me. I think everyone should chime in with this. One is it just got to a, like the single you held up earlier, the My Forgotten Favorite, a member of the band has touched that because we fold some of us or all of us folded the sleeves, stuck the labels in it. So at some point, somebody from this band has touched that single. No way. And that's how everything was up until that point. Uh, then it just got, we reached the, the place where we could, you know, there was too much. We, we couldn't stuff or fold enough singles. Um, you know, we we reached a point where we knew that we were going to probably do better and that someone else could. Have, and by better, I mean, just sell more records or reach more people mm-hmm. uh, that that was going to happen. Um, we had been control in control of everything till that point, but we knew we were, you know, rapidly reaching the point where we just we couldn't do it all ourselves. We got very lucky. And I. I think one of the most important people in all this, one of the most important people in music in general from that time period was Joyce Linehan. Uh, she was running the East Coast um, office of Sub Pop. They, you know, as they were blowing up, they decided they needed an East Coast office, and she was sort of the den mother for all bands on the East Coast, and then just everybody. Literally, she would have three or four bands staying at her house. Um, and we had trust with her and we said, you know, if, if this is what sub pop is like, then this is, you know, they've, they've got some money because of that band that everybody talks about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, they're called your label mates, Kelly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Exactly. You know, good friends. Um, <laughs> I just, I think we had a level of comfort and, you know, there was a point where there was. We didn't have quite the feeding frenzy that other bands had, but we did get taken to these dinners in New York by major label people. And most of them were, it was like, okay, we get to eat expensive food. And some guy says, we're just like a family. (laughs) Um, You know, and I remember I have two distinct memories. One person I won't name, but it was horrible. It was literally like, basically when we're done here, let's go find the hookers and the bull. Oh, I don't remember that. I don't think you were at that dinner. Good oh. thing. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, what the hell is this? 
And then the other was uh, somebody we didn't sign with, but it was a label I have tremendous respect for and a great guy, Joe McEwen from Sire. Hmm. He was like, you know what we do? He goes, he's, he basically said, we're not a family. We, we want to make money off you and we think we can do that. So, you know, let's try and make this thing work. And I just appreciated the honesty of that. For and sure. then, you know, there were the variations in, you know, in between, but Sub Pop was just kind of natural. They did take us out to a nice dinner, but we we're like, these are good people and they were just music geeks. And we thought this is a good home for us. They have enough um, cloud and money in the bank at the moment and they can do some of the things we need. Uh, but, but they're normal people. We could call Jonathan Poneman or Bruce Pavitt on the phone. Hmm. We could pick up the phone and talk to those guys if we needed. Uh, whereas, I, you know, at the time, I don't even know who was the head of Warner Brothers Records, but he's not going to take my phone call. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, I think it was a good and a right thing. And it was, you know, we were the right level for where they were and they were the right level for where we were. Yeah, but you know, what, what? but what's interesting, I was going through their discography before I, I did this. And I mean, you were definitely one of the first departures from kind of that sound that they had i mean did did you guys did you guys ever deal with and i'm just thinking of the other side of this now i mean did you guys take any sort of like negative heat for that like who are these guys like what is this why are you guys releasing this i don't remember i don't remember that at all good okay i think it had to do with just the label being (laughs) the label being so um open mm-hmm. to uh you know um not necessarily uh, you know digging a groove into one sound and just wanting to put out different kinds of music that they liked mm-hmm. yeah when when um we had a bruce pavitt from the label came to washington to uh take us to dinner. Um, and, uh, and he started, he was referencing all the bands that we listened to. He was talking about, have you ever heard of this band, the shop assistants there? Oh, yeah. We were like, we know the shop assistants. We've been listening to their records for, you know, and, and it was, it was opening eye opening for us. I mean, now in retrospect, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, Nirvana and Kurt Cobain sort of was aware of all that music and made people aware of it. Um, uh during the course of of nirvana's career but uh but yeah it was it was kind of eye-opening that they were aware of those bands they weren't just sort of like a uh insular scene and i think once they got sort of the they hit the jackpot with nirvana going major and getting points on on nevermind um they had the money to sort of you know explore whatever sort of other bands and sounds they wanted to to look at and i think I mean, I, I'm speculating here, but I mean, Joyce uh, uh, that Kelly mentioned Joyce Linehan, who, you know, worked out of Boston for them and, and signed us, got us to sign. Uh, I think she had very eclectic taste. I mean, I, I, I think she was sort of, uh, had a, had a good ear for, uh, melodic, uh, rock pop music and, um, kind of spearheaded a lot of that, uh, sort of that, the change of that sound. Yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, it was, oh, sorry, I go ahead, speak. Kelly. I just want to be clear again. Like, I I know that there's certainly, you know, you'd meet somebody out of the Seattle office who was way more into Mud Honey and, uh, you know, uh, Green River or whatever than us. But they were never any less supportive of what we were doing. They're like, "You're out here. Mm-hmm. We're gonna we're gonna help make this happen." And 
everybody at the label, everybody from all the bands that I that I ever met. You know, I ran into Kim Thale once. Just everybody is nice, and every even when we would play with sub pop bands where you would think this is a a weird bill, it doesn't quite match. Everybody's like, "Do you need to use my amp? You want to borrow my guitar?" They they had that same sort of ethos that I think a lot of DC bands do. It's like you help other bands out, and we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was it was shocking. I mean, for me, because I obviously didn't have the inside knowledge. I looked at Sub Pop as, I mean, like the home of grunge. I mean, all that stuff that we know. And then when a band I liked popped down there, I was it just perked my ears up. And so that's when I went out and I bought this. This was this the first single on Sub Pop. We did a split single with Tsunami. I think that was. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, okay. Part of the single of the month club, I think that was maybe the yeah. first one. Okay, got it. Yeah, um, but yeah, I uh, I thought I thought that was a big move, and, and even in the in the years since then, this kind of goes back, I guess, to what you guys are saying about them. I'm just kind of being music geeks and just music people. I mean, really, throughout the '90s, and then I I always looked at another one of my favorite bands, which was an old Sarah band, the you know, the field mice trembling blue stars. And then I saw that came out. It was, it was um, licensed in the U S I was like, sub pop is really, I mean, really expanded. And, and now since then, I mean, they've, they've just, they've done, I mean, every, almost every genre, I think at this point, uh, yeah. but no, that that's a cool story. And it sounds like it really was, was the best decision. I mean, if, if sire would have worked out, I mean, who knows where, where you guys would have ended up really. I think we would have had one record. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I I think Sub Pop did a did a smart thing, and we to give ourselves some credit rather than doing the thing a lot of bands at that time were doing is a label would come in and they would say here's two hundred and fifty thousand dollars we're gonna put it in your lap uh, and then go make a record and then you you not knowing what you're doing spend two hundred and twenty five thousand dollars making a record leaving nothing for yourself uh, you owe the label two hundred and fifty thousand dollars you sell. You know, even if you sell something respectable, you you can't. The, nobody's recouping. Then all of a sudden, you were in a tour bus, and now you're not in a tour bus, and then everybody hates each other, and then you're done. Yeah, God, how many? Yeah, times and that also happen? there's the added bonus of them being so cool about our masters. Yeah, because uh, a a lot of labels, for no reason whatsoever, I've heard a, a few bands talk about uh, labels just being like yeah no (laughs) they're not going to gain anything by by keeping the masters and and not letting the band do something with them but yeah i guess that's i guess that's the business side and and i don't know i mean i look at it the same way you do very cool story about sub pop i i i've obviously grown to to respect the label I think you guys were really my entry into into what they did beyond just what was really kind of popular at the time. Um, we're going to go ahead and listen to another song. And uh, if anybody has anything interesting to say, feel free. Uh, Audrey's Eyes. That's Nothing. another Jim, Jim uh, pop song. Really? Jim, Jim uh, yeah, pop genius uh, <laughs> strikes again. Oh, Jim. I love those of punky pop. Yeah. yeah, that's my thing, I think, anyway, so that probably makes sense. Let's go ahead and give um, Audrey's eyes a listen.
Okay, so we just heard Audrey's Eyes by Velocity Girl. Again, I have Brian, Kelly, and Sarah here with me today. This has been really, really fun talking about uh, kind of the career and the recordings and the label relationships up until up up through that 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 career that you guys had that was really so important, at least to me. I know that. Um, I I sometimes I'll solicit questions from some of the folks that I know. I I typically post a lot of my records on Instagram. And, um, you know, I'll hear from people, oh, my God, I love that album, or oh, I can't believe you like that. I thought it was the only one. So I asked a friend of mine who I know is a big fan of yours. Um, I said, do you have any questions you want to ask the band? He actually contributed two that made the list. And um, I'm going to kind of read this one basically verbatim because it's really his question. Um, he, he asked, while the band was active from the years 89 to 96, roughly, no one in indie rock was more important. He wanted to know, um, why do you think we're seeing such a resurgence in, in that 90s indie rock scene? I mean, we're seeing reissues from you know, Numero Group's been doing some. I know Third Man's done a couple. Uh, 4AD has gone back and done some of their reissues. Why Why do you think that's that's big now? Because I think it is. I mean, I, I'm seeing it myself. What, what's your take on that? I don't have an answer. I see it as well. You do, uh, don't you? I, know. I don't know. It's good. There's some great, great, great music from the 90s. Yep. Eh? Anyone I, else? We are all getting to the age where we've moved around enough that we've lost all the records we have and we're trying to <laughs> back. There's some truth to that. I, I do think, yeah, there's, I mean, the, it, there is an age thing to it, like where it's, it's the appropriate age where all the people who listen, I mean, it's, this is the case for us and somewhat, I think, why we're one of the reasons we're able to be back together and playing shows again now is that we're uh we're all at the age where our kids are old enough that we're not sort of like in the midst of like you know them being babies and infants and and fully raising them we have some time to indulge ourselves in our own interests and things now and so um it's it's like just the good timing like you know uh for everybody it's you know we're we're not too old yet um uh, and we're not, and you know, we're, but we're past the sort of a uh, child rearing, uh, heaviest load of child rearing. So, speak for I, yourself. Okay. My kids, there. my kids are the oldest, I think, in the band. So, uh, just about, and maybe along with Kelly's, but yeah. But this way, you know, if I can, if I can go out and hunt down that uh, codeine re-release oh, and yeah. skip a teacher conference, I'm going to yeah. do that. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm. Oh. I can't tell you how excited I am that Godin is out. They're going to be here, I think, in a couple of weeks, and I can't wait. Um, <laughs> so we're going to go ahead and and give another track a listen because I, this is actually one of my other favorites by you guys. I love Copacetic. I love the album. It just got such a raw feel to me. Um, reminds me of like, you know, maybe a little bit of of it's just the sound of it. Is like the wedding present, um, sea monsters kind of era that Steve Albini sound. It just sounds like put up some microphones, let's play. That's the sound. And um, any any memories of, of recording that that album? Because I I just love it. I think it's such a great sound. Well, I think the one sort of um, trivia fact that's interesting is it was recorded in uh, in Easley Studios in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, that was formerly owned by the Barquets. Mm, so famous. Yeah, famous. Maybe Velocity or we'll do a version of Holy Ghost. We'll have to wait and, and see. <laughs> that's 2025. 
and, and you <laughs> meant you mentioned Steve Albini. It was it was mixed at his house. So yeah. what um, with a three week old holiday not, turkey in the oven? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, not not by him, but uh, but Bob Weston, who who did the recording, um, uh, he he was sort of a, a disciple of Steve Albini's sort of recording methods. So. Um, uh, that was so yeah he said well let's record it easily and then let's mix it you know at, at steve's house so you know it, it was it was he, it was sneaky on the liner on the album notes here mixed in chicago illinois yeah, yeah. <laughs> i never yeah. knew that the one thing i remember about albini's house was uh fugazi's carrots were in his fridge because they had been there s- shortly before us to do they did some tracking for something that never came out but I didn't remember the comment. It's like, yeah, all these carrots in the fridge belong to Fugazi. <laughs> well, that's a good memory of this. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, I'm blown away now because I, I didn't. I didn't. I've been around Fugazi's carrots. Do you, yeah. Do you still if have I recall, them? We didn't. We didn't even. I remember when we went to Memphis. Um, we all got hotel rooms, which of course felt felt like rock stardom to us yeah uh but at steel beanies didn't we stay at his house we yeah, stayed at like- his house yeah 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 he was he was not there and his one rule was we were welcome to stay but we could not sleep in his bed or bedroom oh well that's <laughs> so, fair uh perfectly <laughs> fair rule. yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> looking back on that that's a pretty reasonable request yeah uh, so we're going to go ahead and and give um the title track from copacetic a listen and again this is copacetic <laughs>
I cannot believe this was mixed at his house. I'm like, because I never knew that. And that whole connection to sea monsters, I've always heard that. I, I mean, it wasn't recorded there, but it just maybe has a little bit of that energy to it. I don't know. Huh. Oh, yeah, I think I think definitely. I mean, um, sea monsters was an important album to mm-hmm. us certainly to, to me i mean i love all of the wedding present and they were tremendously influential to us yeah no i see it i see it i i talked to uh gedge a couple episodes ago and <sighs> i mean you talk about a statesman of 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 the uh of the scene i mean how much has he seen over the years <laughs> Drop off. yeah he was great <laughs> um i wanted to shift gears a little bit and kind of talk more we, we kind of did our walk through memory lane and and we talked about kind of how we got here i want to talk about where we're at today and where we're going so i want to talk a little bit about the reunion and um you know i know that you guys did a show or a few shows since the very active days um but i guess my question is what what made the band decide that 2023 was the year that we're going to play shows again we're going to pull out the old tapes we're going to remix what what was the impetus for that Pure numerology. <laughs> Would you mind expounding on that? Not allowed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because, you know, when I read it, when I read all the, um, like on Bandcamp and things, I mean, it just, it has this uh, cinematic feel to it where, you know, Archie's in the basement and he's packing up to move to a new home and he finds this box of, t- that's kind of how I pictured it. Um, but, you know, I, I did, purchase the um the the first which we'll talk about here at the end but the first of the unreleased tracks and um a a couple of those one of those was a was very much an eye-opener to me um it what's the story behind that if you don't mind are you talking about malibu yes i am that that is definitely the shift between you know proto velocity girl and velocity girl uh you know, we were listening to a lot of noise music and it's a, it's a different band at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, Bernie Grendel is the main voice in that. And then I have one of my two vocal appearances in that <laughs> nonsense. Um, although I like the recording. I, I remember when it came up that this was on a tape and that we could put it out. I was a little bit horrified, but then once I heard it, I thought, well, it sounds kind of, sounds kind of cool. Um, it's it's that's just who we were before we became the velocity girl that mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. uh and it's a, you know it's kind of a fun bit and i always dig stuff like when you hear some band that you know for one thing and they do you know something else yeah for sure and and you know i i, I wasn't going to ask this question but with you guys sitting in front of me i just i can't resist it so i've been listening to that the my forgotten favorite uh version there and obviously i mean it's been it's been i don't know if it was like that was a different version of recorded or was that just remixed but the the music sounds the same um as far as like the composition and where the the guitar parts are and everything um but there's obviously different things that have been brought up and brought down was that the same version as the original just remixed or is that a different take altogether it's a remixed version with uh that was the original mix uh so it's the same recordings but a different vocal track yeah so the vocals were re-recorded for it yeah it was definitely that that's at least as far as what i remember i don't think there was anything else there in there but 
yeah i keep listening to it and i'm like i'm like everything musically i've only picked one thing off that was like very well there's a couple of things that were very different and obviously sarah's vocal was very different was that was that just like an early an early vocal take or what what was what was that the vocal side of things sarah uh yeah it was uh very early um recording for me i was not confident i was i was um pitchy <laughs> and you know that was really hard for me to hear i actually can't remember if that's why we we recorded it was i like was i uh did i say i don't like the sound of my voice or did i i don't remember I don't remember that. I'm being... glad I did it. Yeah, Archie talked about Archie has a better memory of of this. I I think it was like we went in to do to remix, and then we decided to redo the vocals, or it was it's something something like that. I don't remember it being like the vocals are unacceptable. It's just we were going in to do something yeah. else. All right, let's let's redo this thing. Yeah. So I was I was off key at points. <laughs> And that was excruciating for me to hear. So I'm glad that we did lost that. Girl, that's completely unacceptable. <laughs> We're professionals here. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, I get. It sounds like uh, from what I have I have heard and learned, um, you know, there is more coming. Um, is, is there anything you can talk about, or not really? Well, I think we're going to release, you know, there's more stuff we've, we have dug up from the vaults. Uh, some things have been remixed. Uh, Copacetic has been completely remixed and we are trying to, we're talking to Sub Pop to see what might or could happen with that. Mm -hmm. um, we've got other tracks. There was a Slumberland release that we are, that's been remixed and we've got some other tracks that, you know, m might see the light of day. So uh, there's old stuff that's going to come out, but there's no new recordings to be expected. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I yeah. think I did hear that or I read that somewhere. Yeah. But, oh, some, some of those too, like even the stuff that's not being uh, remixed, I think are the original master tapes were found and those were not the, the tapes that were actually, we made recordings from those tapes that were sent off to be pressed into the record. So the fidelity of these new releases, um, even if they weren't fully remixed, is like equivalent to be even more equivalent than than being remastered. It's um, it's actually the source material is mm -hmm. of the the recording is is much higher quality. So um, so they should have uh, greater fidelity for people who still have that kind of hearing range left, which is not me really. But uh... <laughs> so if I can, if I can geek out for one second on that. Um, were the were the tapes still in good condition? Because I know that does tend to happen. Yeah, I don't know. The the yeah, the, the tapes. Uh, I mean, so Archie's more the the recording engineer mm -hmm. uh, geek in the band. But um, basically, the tapes, the master tapes of the tracks, uh, the master tracking, um, that all basically you get one shot at like the the tapes are baked in an yep. oven basically mm -hmm. and then uh they're given like they have can maybe one or two more passes through the tape machine after that and so it's all transferred to digital mm -hmm. so um so a lot of those tapes yeah were were not in in great shape just because of age um not necessarily because of storage or anything like that 
Um, but yeah, so the, you basically get kind of one shot and it, it, it worked out well enough to get, uh, good digital, uh, copies of everything. So now, um, you know, Archie could sit around and play with it. And basically he, uh, did most of the work remixing, um, any of the remixes. Yeah. Um, and he masters. really, he really, um, you know, like I said, he had, he has a full-time job like the rest of the guys. <laughs> and, uh, so I think this was taking up almost his every waking hour sure so it was a lot it was a he lot drove himself to the edge yeah, he was yeah. Up it was much, much appreciated but yeah it, I, I think that's i mean just imagine that just hours and hours of like all that minutia <laughs> yeah it's you really, know it's and, and sarah to, to your point i mean it's kind of what i was saying earlier i mean that's the difference i mean when you guys recorded versus and mixed and, and mastered and all that fun stuff versus today i mean you can tinker endless endlessly you have endless tracks endless time endless capacity it, it could never end you guys had you know two and a half three weeks to really record mix master well i don't know about master but then hand it over i mean it's just totally different yeah although i i see a lot i see this conversation a lot more i don't know if you subscribe to tape op but i, I, I love I reading that even, yeah even though i'm not really that active um but people talk about you know you can have in some modern recordings you know a hundred channels mm -hmm. taken up with what you know whatever and you that's the thing you could spend infinite time but then you're in analysis paralysis yep. you could do anything and I, I like i'm seeing more and more um engineers it's it's not it's not the current way but more and more people are saying i'm going to limit myself to 24 tracks or you know we're going to do it by this date and it's done or it's not mm -hmm. um you know and i know everybody wants to make things absolutely perfect but at, but at some point at least to my taste i like things to sound human and if the, it slows up or it speeds down a little bit or somebody's a little sharp or flat here that's what humans sound like mm -hmm. um and i kind of appreciate those recordings when i hear them now when i know somebody went in and knocked something out there's a couple of artists that i follow um there's this singer songwriter from oklahoma city travis lenville and he'll he'll he was uh doing uh, if you're one of his Patreon supporters, you could watch him practice. Wow. And I thought that was one of the most wonderful things either. You could follow him or he, you get to hear different versions of his songs. And it wasn't one million hours spent on something. It's like, here's here's the song as it is. I love that. I love that. Oh, it reminds me of that that Beatles documentary. Was, was it Get Back? Where you, I think it was, where you saw the creation yeah. of... I mean, mm -hmm. a lot of people have just never, I mean, just casual music fans, they don't understand that that evolution that a song or an album goes through to, to hear what you're hearing today. I mean, it can sound ugly. And and I think I think that was really cool. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so I think I only have, uh, I have two more, two more, one more quick and then one more final question. Um, or the other way around, I guess, I'm sorry. You know, coming back together, having played, I think you guys have played, was it one show in D.C. so far? Or was it two? One? One. What was that like? I watched I watched a video I saw online, and I'm going to tell you what, you guys look like you were having a ball. What's it like now playing as, as the age that we all are and our experiences versus maybe when Velocity Girl was at its, at its really, really productive days? I mean, what... 
What's it like now? Um, hip joints. <laughs> Soreness? <laughs> are not as strong. Specifically said, this, this day after slathered in icy hot and uh, <laughs> asper cream and yeah. Take two ibuprofen. Yeah. I mean, it looked yeah. like it was fun. I mean, it looked like you guys were really having a blast. Yeah. Right? And in all seriousness, it was like one of the most joyful experience, yeah. <laughs> experiences I've ever had. Um, like, and I think that has to do with, uh, you know, venue, just such a great venue, the black cat and, um, you know, Dante putting this together, Dante, the owner of the black cat and, um, just that audience, like, uh, they were just kind of like right there with us. Yep. I was so nervous at the beginning. And then once I kind of, you know, this is going to be a little bit corny, but once I kind of felt them with us, I was just like, okay, okay. I think we can do this. <laughs> I mean, the guy, like, you know, the guys were sounding great. We, we really kind of practice and practice and practice and maybe even sounded, especially in practice, better than we ever had. Um. But getting up on stage and playing for grownups was a was a very new thing for me. Oh, and yeah. I was yeah. scared. I was scared. Yeah. Well, you looked like you were really having fun. I mean, like there was like this genuine smile that I saw. It was like some I think it was one of the people in the audience who was recording and I felt it. I mean, I was just super jealous. Um They really owned the stage for sure at that show seriously. in a way that she never had before. <laughs> which was really great. Yeah. I felt so excited to be up there with all these all these cats doing this and I was just I had I don't remember being as nervous. I was fine up until sound check and then I fell apart. Uh, <laughs> right before the show I was like I don't know how any of our songs go. I yeah. I tell you a chord or a note in them. Um and then once we we were in it, it was a few songs into it I was like uh all right, we're here. And then the thing that really helped me is, you know, I did an eye check with the guys in the band, but then once Sarah was just launched, I was like, we are here and we are just, we're on this wave and we are going to ride it. And uh, it was, it was great. Oh, I loved it. You know, I was thinking about that. Like, so my, I've been playing in a um, uh, children's rock band, meaning we are a, a group of adults who play, um, Rock the not cool. That's good kids music. They're called the Nodits. And um uh so I just kind of I, I had developed the style of being a little more out there and, and engaging. Um just because that's what it that's what it that's what seemed to engage the kids. <laughs> and um it also I found helped quell my nerves. Mm. And so I just thought, well, let me just let me just move around and 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 um and do that and and try and be a you know a dynamic performer. And it worked. But the funny thing is I was thinking afterwards, I could have told you guys, just mentioned it. I, I don't think it would have been a big deal just to say, hey, I'm like I'm I'm a my performance style is a little bit different. I mean, I don't think you guys would have cared. <laughs> I think you said, I think you did say something to me. You were going to move around to like, to calm your nerves. And I, I was like, Oh, well, she'll, she'll like jump around like she used to a little, but it's <laughs> not really what I expected. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was tremendous. And yeah. once it 
was happening, I was I was like, I've got the best seat in the house for this. This oh. is Thank you. That means a lot cuz I uh performing has been a um has been uh I was always a very anxious performer and um I'm repeating myself from the last podcast, but oh well, maybe this has a different audience. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> maybe it does maybe it doesn't <laughs> yeah and uh so i would usually use a little liquid courage mm -hmm. <laughs> and um that's kind of not an option for me now and um i decided to use just kind of like putting it all out there um uh and that worked i could yeah tell. and and I have to say that that was that this particular show, because it was the 30th anniversary for the Black Cat and it was a two night show, um, it sort of felt like it was a little bit uh, padded, the the impact of reentry sort of a little bit because mm -hmm. everybody there was there to celebrate the Black Cat. You know, um, it, it wasn't like the folk, the spotlight wasn't on us. Mm -hmm. It was on all those bands, all 10 bands that played for two two nights there. And really to uh, to celebrate the Black Hat, which is, you know, 30 year old venue in D.C. that a lot of the musicians here all kind of cherish. So um, so, you know, the audience was was there to just have a good time, too. So um, and that really sort of I mean, at least for me, I, I kept thinking about it that way. This is this is kind of the Black Hat's show, not really our show. So, hmm. yeah, it makes mm -hmm. sense. Uh, and I, and I, I understand there's some more shows coming. So. Um, if you guys wouldn't mind sharing maybe some of the dates and locations. We're playing uh, this Saturday at Bowery Ballroom in New York City, uh, but that's sold out. Um, we're playing another DC show December 2nd, which is sold out, but we added another night December Friday, December 1st. There are still tickets available. Um, <laughs> and that's all we have planned for right now. That's great. I, I'm, I'm. I would love to make it to DC for for the December show. That'd be yeah, really come fun. on out. <laughs> yeah, it'd be great. I would love. I would. Sarah and I were talking a little bit about um, the show on Saturday, and that that's like a really cool place to play. You're headlining. It's sold out. I mean, how cool is that? <laughs> I mean, it's think about really it. Really cool. <laughs> I know. Completely uh, unbelievable. Who's gonna care? You know, uh, we've we've always done well in New York, but I thought it's been. 20, don't wait 21 years between shows. That's my <laughs> for everybody. Um, but uh, we, I, I was worried. I said, who's going to care? You don't want to play to five. I mean, I would play to five people, but you, you you hope for more than that. And so I can't be pleased. But now I'm going back to being nervous again. <laughs> You're right. It's so yeah. true. Now oh. we got to do goods. Yeah, I, I think I think you guys will be okay. I, I've heard of you guys. I think you've played a couple shows. You'll you'll do just fine. <laughs> Thank um, you. Yeah. Um. So I guess in closing, I, I'm I want I'm gonna kind of say something that that I've picked up, and somebody may have said it earlier, but I picked it up during this conversation. I feel it. Um, that for you guys, I mean, really, where it started and kind of where it's at today is, it's just about making music with your friends. And, yeah. and your friends, you know, they may be on other opposite sides of the country and they may be living their own lives, but you know, you have this in common and, and that moment when you step back on stage at the black hat and, and you know, the music played, the lights went down and yeah, it was the black hat show, but I saw it in you guys. It was like, it was like you were, it was 90, 93 again, you know, just that, that level of, of just making music with your friends. And, and that, that's what it's all about. I think. It felt yeah, a lot. I, that, I really felt that. Felt like I was ninety three. 
<laughs> next day yeah, yeah right. <laughs> wrong yeah. 93 um i'm gonna do something here to close this episode out so i guess you know just to kind of do one last intro i've got sarah i've got brian and i've got kelly here from velocity girl we've been talking all things velocity girl we've been talking about the old days the the very very active days we're talking about the current activity which is very very exciting new releases well um not new but new to us and um, so there's a lot there's a kind of a flurry of activity right now so um, i wanted to thank you guys for joining me today and i'm going to do one thing that i've never done before and hopefully this doesn't cause a fight between all of us but i i normally play one song at the end and then i play a final song after i i conclude the show which i'll record later but um i'm gonna ask you guys what song should i play i have one written down here i was going to play but I, yeah i'm like why don't we ask them what 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 do you think I should play? You guys decide because I'm notorious for not listening to any of that. <laughs> Maybe you should pick. Sarah, Sarah doesn't. Yeah, she doesn't remember the names of any songs. Um, <laughs> the uh... pick one that means something. And to it's you. not because I don't like it. I always you have know. to say that I do love it, oh. but it's. I just don't like to listen to my own voice. I tease, I tease. You won't have to listen. I'm going to put it in after. Shh, we won't Thank tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, what is there anything that maybe Brian and Kelly would, would say, you know what, that's something that either was underappreciated or meant a lot to us, was a turning point. Is there anything like that? I'd love to close the show. On, I've never done this before. I always script it out. Well, I don't want to give... You know, we've had a lot of uh, back and forth in the band, between, you know, with what will we play? Like, what do we know how to play? <laughs> and then what do we agree on? So there's, a, you know, there's a lot of that going on. Yeah. Uh, but there's there's a song that I think that, that we've been doing that I think might end up in the rotation called uh, Why Should I Be Nice to You? Oh, yeah. Uh, and I think that that's been going pretty cool. So. You know, sounded sounded good in rehearsal, yeah, tonight. So that okay. that one. So that's the winner. I'm holding yeah. up the uh, the my forgotten favorite single again. As I told Mike Shulman, this was one of those Slumberland cornerstone recordings, and it sounds like you guys have validated me. So what we're going to do is we're going to close this show with "Why Should I Be Nice to You" by Velocity Girl. Uh, it's the B side from My Forgotten Favorite. Uh, Slumberland uh, release DRYL010. Um, so again, guys, thanks for joining me, Sarah, Brian, Kelly. Good luck this weekend. Good luck in December. If I don't make it, thank you for joining me. Thank thanks you so, so much. much. Thanks. Yeah, one. thank you very much.
Thank you for joining me on this episode of the Vinyl Detroit Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I love speaking to Sarah, Brian, and Kelly of Velocity Girl. Uh, I wanted to thank Jim for helping to arrange this discussion, and uh, I wanted to tell Archie that I missed him. I would have loved to have had him here, but I'm sure he was busy. Uh, as you can tell from my speaking with them, uh, I've been a fan of theirs for a long time, a very deep fan, and I loved having the opportunity to chat with them about their recordings, the early years, uh, some bands and, and scenes that they've been compared to, and I really, really enjoyed our discussion about their signing to Sub Pop. I thought that was great. So if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to check out some of my other episodes on all major podcasting platforms. Uh, feel free to check out my Instagram page where I post a lot of my records. It's vinyl underscore Detroit. And I hope you enjoyed this episode again as much as I did. So we're going to close this episode off with one of the early tracks. This is actually one of their first seven inches on Sub Pop. I think we spoke about it. And it's the A-side. And we're going to go ahead and listen to Crazy Town by Velocity Girl. And thanks again for joining me. Yeah. Mm-hmm.